Okay, so tonight uh, for the fifth lecture in our seven-part summer series, I am covering chapters 2 and 16. And uh, unlike the past couple of lectures, I'm not working from a strict script on this one. Uh, I'd rather speak more um, extemporaneously than uh, reading from a script. So, but, but the first part of this uh, lecture, I'd like to go back for a moment, uh, in this part I am reading, go back for a moment to the last, to a couple of lectures uh, in the previous in this series. The first lecture was uh, our overview of the Lotus Sutra lecture, and in that lecture, uh, sometimes people think that that lecture is just, ac just academic and seemingly pointless because one of the things that we cover uh, in preference preface to studying the Lotus Sutra is the various ways to divide up the Lotus Sutra. And one of those ways is into the uh, provisional or shakumon uh, section of the Lotus Sutra and the other section being the homon or essential section of the Lotus Sutra. And so sometimes people wonder, well, what's the point of that? And, you know, when you're at the very first lecture when I'm giving the overview lecture, I don't go into a lot of detail about the significance of how to divide up the sutra, except to tell us that it does serve as an important guide into how we relate to different portions of the sutra. So, the Shakamon, or provisional section of the Lotus Sutra, consists of chapter 1 and includes chapter 14. The essential section, uh, or homon, of the Lotus Sutra consists of chapter 15 to the end of the sutra, of the sutra, chapter 28. And as I mentioned in the first lecture, and I'll review it here, each of these three parts, there is, they are divided into a preface, a main, and an epilogue. And uh, tonight we're going to study the main portions of each of those two sections. And... Uh, these two sections are sometimes referred to as the two gates to the Lotus Sutra, the provisional gate and the essential gate. So the main part of the provisional gate, or the Shakamon, is chapters 2 through 9, and tonight we're going to talk about a portion of chapter 2. And chapter, the, essential, uh, the main part of the essential gate consists of chapter 15 through the first half of chapter 17, and so tonight we're going to study uh, chapter 16. So, uh, also in the, uh, the in, in overview lecture, I talk about the three assemblies in two locations as another way that the Lotus Sutra is uh, divided up for study. And so tonight we're going to be, uh, in, in last lecture we talked about the beginning of the second assembly, the assembly that takes place in the air, which is the second location. So we had the first location at Mount uh, Sacred Eagle, the second location being above in the air. And uh, the first assembly is the uh, assembly on the ground, and the second assembly uh, is the assembly that takes place in the air. So tonight, uh, chapter 16 is a part of that second assembly in the second location. So first, let's uh, talk about chapter 2. Uh, the Lotus Sutra begins in chapter 1 with the Buddha sitting in meditation. And he arrived at that meditation uh, from the Sutra of Innumerable Meanings that is taught right before the Lotus Sutra. And at the conclusion of the Sutra of Innumerable Meanings, the Buddha goes into meditation. So chapter 1 is just a description of the various phenomena, phenomena that happen while the Buddha is in meditation. Chapter 2 picks up with these words. It begins, thereupon the world-honored one emerged quietly from his samadhi and said to Shariputra. Shariputra here is a representative of all the arhats. He's also the wisest of the Buddha's disciples. He's purported to be the wisest of the Buddha's disciples. So what's the significance of this? Well, there's a couple of... Uh, things going on here that, that uh, as we approach the Lotus Sutra that we may or may not be aware of. And, and one of them is, is that 
Previously, when the Buddha taught, he responded to questions. So his teachings were in response to specific questions in members' various congregations as he was traveling around. So in, in those situations, we say the Buddha was not speaking of his mind. He was speaking to the mind of the questioner. The Lotus Sutra is unique because the Buddha starts out right here. After, thereupon the world honored one emerged quietly from his samadhi and said to Shariputra. There's no question here. The Buddha just begins teaching. Quote, the wisdom of the present Buddhas is profound and immeasurable. Unprompted, the Buddha begins to speak. So we say that the Lotus Sutra is a teaching of the Buddha's mind because this is his uh, initiated conversation with us. And if you could think, if you could just imagine uh, of the lottery, this is an analogy I always like to use to try to help you feel the the, the sense or the emotions of the congregation as the Buddha comes up out of his meditation and begins to speak. Imagine, if you will, you uh, purchased a lottery ticket and you're, say, watching the lottery as the balls come up on TV. I guess they still do that. I don't have a TV, so I don't really know. But I do remember that in years past, they would have a portion of some night where they, the balls would be going around, and one ball would pop up, and it'd have a number on it. And that first number, it's one of the numbers on your ticket. And so you're excited, but, you know, I mean, that's, that's you know, it's not that big a deal yet. Uh, the next ball pops up, and, and that's your number. Okay, so you're, you're getting a little bit more excited. You're you know, maybe a little anxious. The third ball pops up, and that's your number. The fourth ball pops up, and that's your number. Okay, do you think that at this moment you would get up and go to the bathroom? Or you would get up and go to the kitchen and go to the refrigerator and grab a beer or whatever your soda or your, your um, liquid refreshment might be? Remember, Five balls have popped up, and they're your number out of seven. I'm not quite sure that you would be willing to get up at that moment. Six balls pop up. It's your number. Okay, you're probably on the edge of your seat right now because you, you've just won a lot of money, and you could win a lot more. This is not the time for a bathroom break. This is not time uh, uh, to get up and be interrupted from the from the, uh, the broadcast. This is the kind of awe that the congregation was experiencing at this moment. The Buddha has, is doing something that had never been done before by the Buddha. Remember, this had just been preceded by the earth shaking and quaking, uh, a beam of a light illuminating, uh, emitting from the Buddha's forehead illuminating countless worlds to the east. The people are in awe. So the Buddha says to Shariputra, uh, basically, uh, he says, Shariputra, since I became a Buddha, I also have been expounding various teachings with various stories of previous lives, with various parables, and with various similes. I have been leading, I have been leading all living beings with innumerable expedients in order to save them from various attachments. And he says further, Shariputra, the insight of the Tathagatas is wide and deep. The Tathagatas have all the states of mind towards innumerable living beings, unhindered eloquence, power, fearlessness, dhyana concentrations, emancipations, and samadhis. So the Buddha is describing the, the varieties of teachings, and he's doing that because he wants Shariputra and uh, also the entire congregation to realize that up to this point, he has employed a variety of methods to teach 
Buddhism to the congregation. And he's really setting up Shariputra and the congregation to reveal that, that basically all of his teachings up to this point have been just expedience. They have been provisional. They have been there to guide people, to get people to a particular point. And the point that he is going to make and just uh, later on in chapter 2 is that there are not three ways to approach enlightenment. There's not uh, the learners or the shravakas. There's not the contemplatives or the pratyaka buddhas. There is not just the bodhisattvas. That there are not three different ways to attain enlightenment. There is just one single way, and that is the Buddha vehicle. So the Buddha is setting this up saying, you know, I've, I've used a lot of different techniques. I've told a lot of different stories. I've given a lot of different examples. And they're for one purpose. They're for the purpose to lead you to this point when I will tell you that all of that was just a temporary, a transient, a passing phenomena to lead you, to get you to this point now where I will tell you that there is just one way to attain enlightenment. The Buddha also says in chapter 2, right before we read the Ten Suchnesses or the Nyose, uh, he says, he says, Shariputra, in short, the Buddhas attained the innumerable teachings which you have never heard before. So the Buddhas have attained stuff that I haven't even taught you yet. But, and then he continues on, he says, no more Shariputra will I say, because the Dharma attained by the Buddhas is the highest truth, rare to hear and difficult to understand. Only the Buddhas attain the highest truth, that is, the reality of all things in regard to their, and this is the Nyoze, so, Nyoze Sho, Nyoze Tai, Nyoze Riki, and so on and so forth. In English, we say the ten suchnesses. That is, the reality of all things in regard to their appearances as such, their natures as such, their entities as such, their powers as such, their activities as such, their primary causes as such, their environmental causes as such, their effects as such, their rewards and retributions as such, and their equality as such, despite these differences. So for uh, Ryan's benefit, that is the Nyoze So, Nyoze Sho, Nyoze Tai, Nyoze Riki that um, we say in Shindoku, that's how it is said in English. So, so the Buddha says, and let me say here again, the Buddha's attain, the Buddha, the Dharma attained by the Buddhas is the highest truth, rare to hear and difficult to understand. Going further in chapter two, he says uh, several times, he says uh, that uh, the understanding of the Lotus Sutra comes from faith. And uh, let's see. He says here, Shariputra and all of you present here, understand the Dharma by faith with all your hearts. There is no other vehicle than the one Buddha vehicle. And he says to Shariputra, I expound this expedient teaching in order to cause them to enter the way to the wisdom of the Buddha. I never said to them, you shall be able to attain the enlightenment of the Buddha. I never said this because the time was not yet ripe for it. So he's telling you, he's telling Shariputra and all the congregation that he never until this point told them specifically that they would attain enlightenment. Up until this point, their objective in practice had been nirvana. And in fact, Shariputra had been denied. The Buddha had said to him continually that Shariputra would never attain enlightenment, that he had scorched the seeds to his enlightenment. 
that people of learning, the Shravakas, uh, were not able to attain enlightenment because they, they were uh, trying to understand the sutra from an intellectual perspective and also for their own personal benefit. But he also doesn't want the bodhisattvas who practice for others to think that they have something special either because it is not, uh, the bodhisattva practice is not the ultimate objective of Buddhism but to attain enlightenment. And we do that actually, and this is one of the things that when we incorporate the three vehicles into the one Buddha vehicle, then it becomes important for us to realize the significance of of understanding, of contemplation, of bodhisattva practices for others as all being an integral part of attaining enlightenment. That the secret or the key is not one over the other. And also in the chapter two, the Buddha says, know this, Sariputra, I once vowed that I would cause all living beings to become exactly as I am. The Lotus Sutra is often referred to as the teaching of equality. That no more is the Buddha holding back anything from us. He is opening up his heart. He is sharing with us the ultimate truth of all reality. The storehouse of enlightenment for all Buddhas. Equal to all of us. So I talked about the context or the arising of the teaching of what, what, the, what that may have felt like to the congregation as the Buddha begins to teach without being asked a question, without being prompted. Um, and I talked about the significance of this self-initiated, self by meaning the Buddha, initiated teaching. And I talked briefly about the three, the concept of the three vehicles and the single Buddha vehicle. I'd like to talk a little bit more about this concept of accepting by faith. And for those here at the temple who've maybe listened to other lectures or who have heard me talk ad infinitum about this, uh, about the, the practice of realizing and embracing and actualizing the Lotus Sutra in our daily life. And, and this gets into accepting by faith. If we approach the Lotus Sutra strictly from an intellectual perspective, um, from logic and reasoning and just maintain being the scholar, then the Lotus Sutra remains a 3,000-year-old historical document. Nice, pretty, maybe sounds good, you know, but it's just a historical document. But when we approach the Lotus Sutra through faith, then we realize or we release the Sutra from the realm of history and bring it into the realm of modernity through our experience of the actuality of the truth of the Lotus Sutra. We cannot do this just from our mind. I mean, you know, as I talked last week, the appearance of the stupa from underground and hovering in the sky, you know, the stupa is 5,000 miles high, 2,500 miles wide, 2,500 miles deep. That's, that's in the context of just rationality, that, that's just not real. It sounds nice. And, you know, we might make the, the logical leap that that's a metaphor for something, but still we're looking at it as a historical document. We're looking at it as 3,000-year-old teaching of the Buddha. What the Buddha wants us to do is, is embrace this with faith, embrace this with our life, to suspend our rationality for a period of time to allow ourselves to embrace our feelings and our emotions and our experiences. And this becomes important when we get into the concept of bodhisattvas from underground. And 
Now I'm going to move into uh, talking about chapter 16. So when I left it last week, we had the stupa appearing above the ground. We had uh, the, uh, the Buddha calling back all of his emanations from uh, countless places in the universe. We have the Buddha purifying this land and when this land isn't big enough and then this land isn't big enough to hold all of these emanations of the Buddha that have been called back from various parts of the universe. He joins several thousand million other lands to this one and uh, purifies them and still that's not big enough to hold all of the Buddhas that have come back from various places in the universe and so he then brings together another thousand million worlds and joins them to this world so he has created an immensely huge space and again this is to help us transcend space to transcend and also the appearance of the Buddhas uh, the uh, Many Treasures Buddha is to represent the transcendence of time. So we have suspended space and time in this appearance of the stupa. And that's all well and good. That's pretty neat, maybe you might say. It's pretty impressive. But what does that mean to us practicing? The Buddha has asked the congregation there, he asked the, the congregation, who's going to teach this Lotus Sutra after I die? And last lecture um, was uh, some of the things I talked about was various transition moments in the Lotus Sutra. I had mentioned that in chapter 10 we have the transition from the emphasis on the relics of the Buddha to an emphasis on the Dharma or the teaching of the Buddha the sutra, so we no longer uh, revere the body of the Buddha, but we revere the teaching of the Buddha. That's a transition that takes place in chapter 10. We had the transition from the ceremony, from the congregation on the ground to the congregation in the air. We also have a transition here of present versus future. The Buddha now is thinking about the spread of the Dharma beyond his lifetime. He has asked those in the congregation, who will spread this Dharma after my extinction? This is not something that has really occurred before in sutras. So we have a shift from present to future. Various groups in the congregation say, we will, but not in this world. This world is too difficult. The people are too perverted. The people are too ignorant, and so on and so forth. So various people in the congregation uh, volunteered, but with the condition of not in this world. And the Buddha said, thanks, but no thanks. The, uh, I need it spread in this Saha world. Other people who had come from various other portions of the universe said, we will uh, spread it in this Saha world. And the Buddha said, thanks, but no thanks. Um, you are not of this world, and so you really can't relate to the people of this world. And in a way, he's setting the congregation up, as we, as we find out, uh, as we found out last uh, two weeks ago in the lecture, that he's really kind of setting the congregation up so that he can introduce a group of bodhisattvas that have been trained by him since the infinite past. So he declines all of the, the offers uh, to spread the Dharma in the future after his extinction, and he says, uh, never mind, uh, thanks but no thanks. I've got this other group of people that I have been training who are better prepared to teach the Dharma in the ages, in the age of degeneration, the age after I have uh, entered into extinction. And so at this point, the ground quakes and breaks open and up from the ground emerge countless millions of, of really phenomenal people. They are tall in stature and their uh, beauty is, is awe-inspiring and 
They're just really noble-looking characters, and they come by the droves. And so we're left at the end of uh, last lecture, chapter uh, uh, 15, uh, asking the Buddha, who are these people? We have been with you the, your entire teaching career, and we've never seen these people. And yet you say you've taught them? How is that possible? So, chapter 16. So that's the context with which we enter chapter 16. We've got the question to the Buddha, who the heck are these people? Where did they come from? And how can you say you've taught them when we've been with you and we've never seen these people before? We've never seen not only these people, but we've never seen this many people. So we enter into chapter 16, and the Buddha begins to explain. He begins to explain the duration of his life. And so the, the title of the um, chapter 16 in English is The Duration of the Life of the Tathagata. And it begins, Thereupon the Buddha said to the great multitude, including bodhisattvas and others, quote, Good men, Understand my sincere and infallible words by faith. He said to the great multitude again, quote, Understand my sincere and infallible words by faith. He said to them once again, quote, Understand my sincere and infallible words by faith. Three times at the beginning of this chapter, the Buddha says, Understand by faith, not by our minds. So, thereupon the great, again I'm reading from the Lotus Sutra, thereupon the great multitude of bodhisattvas, headed by Maitreya, joined their hands together and said to the Buddha, World honored one, tell us, we will receive your words by faith. And they said this three times. And, um, I'm not sure if I've covered it in this series uh, or if it's been someplace else, but this asking and telling three times is really significant in Buddhism. Uh, and in fact, it's traditional even uh, in the priesthood. When you first ask to become a priest, um, you are uh, denied. And this uh, happens uh, several times. And for the insincere person, they'll say, they'll take no for an answer. For the crazy person, they'll keep asking <laughs> and until eventually the person says yes or you know something else. So, so it's traditional in Buddhism that there's this multiple asking as a demonstration of sincerity and faith. And if you think about it, you know, uh, the, the person who asks the question and then somebody says no and then walks away, you have to wonder, how deep was their sincerity? I mean, how much did it really matter to them? If there's something that we really want, we, we ask again, or we try to figure out what the conditions are to make it possible, and so then we ask again, and so on and so forth, until you know, somehow or another we, we get our true heartfelt desire fulfilled. So we have this asking and telling three times, and this occurs many times throughout the Lotus Sutra. So, going on further, thereupon the world-honored ones, seeing that they repeated their appeal even after they repeated it three times. So not only did they say it three times, but they asked again. So it says here, right before that sentence, just to give you back up a little bit here, make that make sense. Quote, they said this, this three times. Then they said once again, tell us, we will receive your words by faith. Not only three times, but an additional time. This is really important. You know, as for the modern reader, for, I don't know, maybe even it's just us Americans, uh, we read this and we don't understand the context of it, and so we think, oh gosh, this is just a lot of words. Just get to the point, you know? And, and maybe we might say, oh, you know, what's the point of this? Uh, you know, this is just too much. 
So it's a, reading the literature is difficult if we don't understand what is going on here. So then, thereupon the world-honored one, again, I'm reading from the Lotus Sutra, thereupon the world-honored one, seeing that they had repeated their appeal even after they repeated it three times, said to them, listen, quote, listen to me attentively. I will tell you about my hidden core and supernatural powers. It's very understated there about what's going on. <laughs> Continuing, the gods, men, and asuras in the world think that I, Shakyamuni Buddha, left the palace of the Shakyas, sat at the place of enlightenment not far from the city of Gaya, and attained Anuttara Samyak Sambodai 40 and odd years ago. To tell the truth, good men, it is many hundreds of thousands of billions of nayutas of kalpas since I became a Buddha. And then he goes on to describe uh, the, how, how we could comprehend this concept of the distance of time from which the Buddha attained enlightenment. And he says, suppose someone smashed into dust 500,000 billion Nayuta Asamya worlds. And at one point, my lecture series a couple of years ago, I actually had uh, given a calculation for what Nayuta Asamya's worlds is. But it's a, it's a very large figure, and I, I don't have that tonight with me. So anyway, continuing. Where, uh, which were each composed of 1,000 million Sumeru worlds. So a Sumeru world is a world in which there's a Mount Sumeru. Okay, so we've gathered together 500,000 billion Nayuta Asamyak worlds. Even if we didn't know what Nayuta Asamyak worlds were, just the concept of 500,000 billion worlds is big. And each of those worlds contains 1,000 million Sumeru worlds. Already we're a, a, a huge number. And suppose that person went, went to the east and, I, east, and I kind of paraphrase here, but I'm going to continue reading. And went to the east, carrying the dust with him. When he reached the world at a distance of 500,000 billion Nayuta Asamkya worlds from this world, he put a particle of dust on that world. He then went again to the east and repeated the putting of a particle of dust on the world at every distance of 500,000 billion Nayuta Asamkya worlds until the particles of dust were exhausted. Good men, what do you think of this? Do you think that the number of the worlds he went through is conceivable, countable, or not? Maitreya Buddha Bodhisattva and the others said to the Buddha, quote, world honored one, those worlds are innumerable, uncountable, inconceivable. No Shravaka or Prachaka Buddha could count them even by his wisdom without Asravas. We are now on the stage of Avaivatraka, but cannot enter. World honored one, those worlds are innumerable. And then the Buddha goes on to tell you, okay, that's a big number, but he's going to give him something even bigger. And he goes on to describe more uh, how to envision. Uh, and then he says, suppose those worlds, whether they were marked with particles of dust or not, were smashed into dust. That's a big bag of dust. The number, that was, those were my words, it's not in the sutra here. The num and I'm going back to the sutta. The number of kalpas which have elapsed since I became a Buddha is 100,000 billion Nayuta Asamkyas larger than the number of the particles of the dust thus produced. What we're trying to do here is to represent infinity. Previously in the Lotus Sutra, the, the Buddha has already given a very large number, and this number is meant to be even bigger than that, to help them grasp the concept of infinity.
You know, I always talk about, um, I think for humans, the concept of infinity, um, to, to really understand it, I think we approach insanity. Because our whole life is contained. Everything we experience as humans has a container. It has a limit. It had a beginning, it'll have an end, even if we don't see it in this lifetime, it, 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 it ceases to exist at some point. And we have a glass of water, we have a, a box of stuff, we, you know, everything is contained. Everything is measurable. And when we try to grasp with the unmeasurable, even as a mathematician, a person who enjoys and loves math and plays around with numbers and think that, thinks that math may approach the true religion. Infinity is it's just a phenomenal concept and one that we really don't have any way of experiencing. So the Buddha is trying to help them experience infinity. So the Buddha has told them, he's told them, you saw me attain enlightenment. You think I attained enlightenment by sitting under a tree 40 some odd years ago, but no, that is not the case. Actually, my enlightenment, the enlightenment of Buddhas is an eternal phenomenon. So we talk about in Nichiren Shu, the eternal Buddha, Shakyamuni. And we have statues of Sakamuni Buddha, who uh, are that which represent for us this concept of eternal Buddha. There's no way for us to represent the eternal Buddha. So we have a stand-in, and we have a statue of Sakamuni Buddha. Nichiren himself carried for most of his life, a statue of Shakyamuni Buddha that was found by a fisherman uh, and given to him on his, in his exile to Izu Peninsula. Again, the statue does a poor job of representing this concept of eternal Buddha. All right, I've got about a half hour left. One of the things to understand, uh, we kind of approached this a little bit when we were talking last lecture about emanations of the Buddha. An important thing to understand is that the concept of eternal Buddha, uh, excuse me, the concept of eternal Buddha is a concept of Buddhism and Buddhahood, enlightenment, spanning time and space. And what the Buddha is telling us is that it's had different names, it's had different sutras, it's had different teaching devices appropriate to whichever situation a Buddha found himself in or herself. But fundamentally, the teachings of the Buddha are universal and without variance. They are eternal. And so he illustrates this with the uh, parable of the good physician. So I had one sutra, one lecture series, where I just talked about parables in the Lotus Sutra. And I had put off, I had said that there were a couple of parables that I would talk about independent of that. Uh, that lecture, and one of those is the good physician. This parable appears in chapter 16, in which we have a physician who is out of the house, and while he is out, his children take some poison, and they lose control of their mind. The father comes back and sees the children sick and, and going crazy. And he says here in the sutra, and I'm quoting, he was, a good, he was good at dispensing medicines and curing diseases. 
He had many sons, numbering 10, 20, or 100. One day, he went to a remote country on business. After he left home, the sons took poison. The poison passed into their bodies, and the sons writhed in ag agony, rolling on the ground. At that time, the father returned home. Some sons had already lost their right minds, while the others still had not. All the sons saw their father in the distance and had great joy. They begged him on their knees, saying, You came back safely. We were ignorant. We took poison by mistake. Cure us and give us back our lives. Continuing, seeing his son suffering so much, the father consulted books of prescriptions and collected good herbs, having a good color, smell, and taste. He compounded a medicine by pounding and sieving the herbs and gave it to them, saying, This is very good medicine. It has good color, smell, and taste. Take it. It will remove the pain at once, and you will not suffer anymore. The sons who had not lost their right minds, saw that this good medicine had a good color and smell, took it at once, and were cured completely. But the sons who had already lost their right minds did not consent to take the medicine given to them. Although they rejoiced at seeing their father come home and asked them to cure them, because they were so perverted that they did not believe that this medicine, having a good color and smell, had a good taste. The father thought, these sons are pitiful. They are so poisoned that they are perverted. Although they rejoice at seeing me and ask me to cure them, they do not consent to take this good medicine. Now I will have to, I will have them take it with an expedient. He said to them, know this, now I am old and decrepit. I shall die soon. I am leaving this good medicine here. Take it. Do not be afraid that you will not be cured. Having thus advised them, he went to a remote country again. Then he sent home a messenger to tell them, Your father has just passed away. Having heard that their father had passed away from this world, leaving them behind, they felt extremely sorry. They thought, If our father were alive, he would love and protect us. Now he has deserted us and died in a remote country. They felt lonely and helpless because they thought that they were parentless and shelterless. Their constant sadness finally caused them to recover their right minds. They, <coughs> they realized that this medicine had a good color, smell, and taste. They took it and were completely cured of the poison. On hearing that they had recovered their health, the father returned home and showed himself to them. So Buddha has given us the good medicine of the Lotus Sutra. And he has encouraged us to take it. It is perfect in every aspect. It has good color, smell, and taste. And the Buddha has put it together by pounding and sieving herbs. And he's presented it to us. And yet, it's not easy for us to take it. In fact, for some people, it's very difficult, even bordering on impossible. And so what's taking place in chapter 16 here is that the Buddha says to his disciples, it's not long before I die. And so I am giving this good medicine to you, the Lotus Sutra, to you, for you to take, for you to cure your illness of suffering. And we go on in further chapter 16. And this is from the portion that we recite in Shindoku. Quote, In order to save the perverted people, I expediently show them my nirvana. In reality, I shall never pass away. I always live here and expound the Dharma. Although I always live here with the perverted people, I disappear from their eyes by my supernatural power. When they see me seemingly pass away and make offerings to my sariras and adore me, admire me, and become devout, upright, and gentle, and wish to see me with all their hearts at the cost of their lives, I reappear on Mount Sacred Eagle with my sangha and say to them, 
I always live here. I shall never be extinct. I show my extinction to you expediently. Although I never pass away, I also expound the unsurpassed Dharma to the living beings of the other worlds. If they respect me, believe me, and wish to see me, you have never heard me say this before. Well, I'm sorry. You have never heard this. Therefore, you thought that I pass away. So the Buddha is saying, you have, you've never heard me tell you this before, so you just think that I'm going to die, and you think that my enlightenment consists of the 40-some-odd years that you have been present with me. But in fact, the true teaching of the Dharma, the teaching of the mind, heart, and of all Buddhas, as expressed in the Lotus Sutra, is a teaching that will reveal the eternal Buddha to us. So, so from a logic standpoint, from a strictly intellectual, rational standpoint, this is all a nice story. But what we are trying to do as bodhisattvas from underground, practicing the Lotus Sutra in this age, some 3,000 years after the death of the Buddha, what we are trying to do is actualize with our life the experience of the truth of this teaching. So, are we bodhisattvas from underground? Are we those people? As some of you have heard me say in my, from my mathematical, logical mind, it's sort of an if-then situation that we create for ourselves. So, if I'm practicing the Lotus Sutra some 3,000 years after the Buddha's death, then might I not be one of those bodhisattvas that appears from underground and who later on in the sutra vows to practice this sutra in this time? I mean, if I'm doing it, might I be one of those people? Is that a possibility? And if I see that as a possibility, then what am I called upon to do? And what is it possible for me to experience? And if I do those things and I experience those things, then might I not experience the eternal Buddha and the actuality of the truth of the bodhisattvas who appear from underground and the truth of the many treasures Buddha and his stupa? So, we have a few minutes left here, and uh, leave some time for some, some, a uh, few questions. And if, depending upon how many people are online, um, I'll either, I'll try and see if we can do them online, or if someone wants to Skype me, uh, or just call me on the cell phone. But, so, I'd like to conclude by saying that uh, there's six reasons why chapter 16 is important, and why we read the poem part uh, so frequently at our services. Number one is this reveals the eternity of Buddha's propagation. And we find this in the very beginning of this poem part where it says, it is many hundreds of thousands of billions of trillions of asamkhyas of kalpas since I became the Buddha. The second important reason is this shows the perverted or ignorant people the way to Buddhahood. And we have this in the actual the next set of stanzas where it says, for the past innumerable kalpas, I have always been expounding the Dharma to many hundreds of millions of living beings in order to lead them into the way of Buddhahood. The third important reason is that this shows the eternal land of the Buddha when he says further on, much further on, he says, I see the perverted people sinking in an ocean of suffering. Therefore, I disappear from their eyes and cause them to admire me. When they adore me, I appear and expound the Dharma to them. 
Number four is it reveals the eternal salvation of the people. In other words, that they always exist in that state. There is no separation. There is no one state and then uh, an eternally or an enlightened state. That in actuality, um, there is that oneness of the subject and object. So, uh, so in order, and we find this, in order to save the perverted people, I expediently show them my nirvana, show my nirvana to them. In reality, I shall never pass away. I always live here and expound the Dharma. I'm always here. I'm always teaching. You just have to open your eyes. You just have to tune in to the right station. It's on FM. The fifth reason is the actual salvation of the people, revealing the way he leads people. So this is found in the portion where it says, in the same manner, I am the father of the world. I am saving all living beings from suffering. Because they are perverted, I say that I shall pass away, although I shall not. If they always see me, they will become arrogant and licentious and cling to the five desires so much that they will fall into the evil region. So the Buddha's death, his physical form, is just an expedient. It is to awaken within us a desire to attain enlightenment. And if, if he always remained here, and if he did not pass away, we would just take it for granted. And so he creates the illusion of temporariness, you could say, of, imper of permanence or, or of impermanence. When in fact, it always exists. We just have to, as I said, tune in. And the sixth reason is the Buddha's vow. And the Buddha's vow is the final four lines of the Lotus Sutra, and it is on the little ihai that I have on the side altar here. I am always thinking, how shall I cause all living beings to enter into the unsurpassed way and quickly become Buddhas? And so I have about 10 minutes after, 10 minutes after eight, I'm gonna get up and see how many, who all is online. We have still just one person, so I'm not sure that it is. Uh, but if whoever it is would like to uh, call me, and uh, you can call me on Skype if you don't have my cell phone number. And I'm logging on to Skype, and on Skype I am Rev Rusho. That's R-E-V-R-Y-U-S-H-O. 